This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. Hello, I'm Helen Mark, and thanks for downloading this episode of Radio 4's Open Country podcast, a series that brings you fascinating stories from every corner of the UK countryside. We hope you enjoy it. Glindbourne, a world-class opera house, built in the grounds of a stately home in the middle of the Sussex countryside. But it's the gardens and the dramatic setting in the rolling hills of the South Downs that make coming to Glindbourne a unique experience. It's one of those rare places where art and landscape, they literally come together. And for this open country, I've come to find out how these gardens are created and maintained and also explore the ways in which this place inspires the singers, musicians and artists that work here. My name is John Hoyland and I'm the garden advisor here at Glyndebourne. And my job here is to help make the gardens beautiful for the people who work here and the people who come and listen to operas. And you wanted me to begin my exploration of this garden landscape at this particular site, John. So why here? Exactly here, here, because this is where people who come by public transport will arrive. So people come up through this meadow and arrive at the end of this long terrace. So your first view of Glyndebourne itself, of the Opera House, is through this rose arch and through this double herbaceous border, which is very colourful, very exuberant. And I think it's pretty breathtaking. I think it's a great way to arrive at your your afternoon's entertainment. And you and I are going to explore a cultivated landscape that is connected to the world of opera and the sounds of, of music that there are in this particular place. But I love that you make... A person's transition from the outside landscape of the South Downs through a grass meadow, which is hugely informal. It's also very calming and very quiet, so you don't get all the excitement of the garden straight away. What you get, you can see there's oxide daisies at this time of year. Earlier on there are bulbs, and it's full. We're very lucky here because we've got masses of orchids. It's full, if you look, of, of wild orchids. So it's a natural in inverted commas, landscape that you're, you're, you're coming to. But through there, you're seeing something much more exciting and much more cultivated. But, so that if you walk down here with me through this rose arch and just take in those first scents of the garden... For it completely surrounds us. Absolutely. And sides got, and overhead, and the honeysuckle is there as well. And you've got the first glimpse of the theatre, and you can see mm. this very exuberant double border. But then when you get here... You turn around and there is that wider landscape of the South Downs and the treescape and the lake. And I never fail when I walk along here to think, wow, it's exciting and it's inspiring. And I hope that when people arrive from their coach, they have an intake of breath. So you really feel that the gardens are an important part of the experience of coming to the opera. They're essential. It's an absolutely integral part of coming to the opera at Glyndebourne 
are the landscapes and the gardens. Now, when you go to most theatres, when you go to most operas, when you go to most cinemas, you, you rush after work, you get on a busy tube or a bus and you manage to get to your seat all out of breath. And uh, here... You arrive a few hours beforehand and you walk around the lake, you take in the gardens, you stare at that wonderful landscape of the South Downs and you immerse yourself in this wonderful countryside. You listen to those blackbirds that we've got chirping away there. And I think that just relaxes you and prepares you. Well, do you feel, as we meander between these deep herbaceous borders it's just absolutely joyous John all the colours, the leaf shapes the textures the heights, how does the music of the opera fit in with this sort of landscape, does it? It absolutely does and as we go around you'll see that the each part of the garden has got a different atmosphere so there are some parts of the garden like this double herbaceous border which is a bit crazy it's very wild and it's very it's full of fireworks there are sometimes when you come out of an opera you're on cloud nine you're you're, you're you come out of uh, don pasquale which is a bit of a riotous fun time or the marriage of figaro and you're bubbling away and fizzing and you want something like this but then there are times there are some operas where frankly it's pretty depressing and it's serious there are operas that deal with infanticide or even hamlet which is playing at the moment it's pretty serious so there are times when you come out that you don't want all of this. You don't want all this brightness and colour and fizz. So there are parts of the garden you'll see which are much more calming, which are just green and quiet, and you can just sit and be, or you can go by the, some of the meadows and stare at the landscape. So hopefully the gardens, or a part of the garden, will help with the way that you experience the opera, the way that you feel about the opera. I'm with you at the start of the day and the performance is tonight part of the repertoire. What's on tonight? Tonight is Ipamestra, which is a, a rarely performed opera by Cavalli. So what I can hear in the background, along with the buzzing of bees and insects over all these glorious flowers, are the, it's, it's the machinery of the workings of setting up an opera, the clanking of the set and the next thing, exactly. the preparation of the grounds for you know for the visitors, the audience to arrive. It's a constant hive of activity. It is, absolutely. Yeah. And in a short while, you'll hear from the rehearsal rooms people warming up. Now, um, there are a few people just gathering up at the top of the garden, and I think that's yeah. Kevin Martin. That's, he's your head gardener. Do you want to go and meet Yeah, that would be great. come down to meet Kevin Martin who is the head gardener here and to meet up with you Kevin I walk through different garden areas and they each have their own theme sometimes it's abundant herbaceous borders then I walk through a place which was hugely exotic with cannas and grasses and bamboos it's just beautiful but you're under pressure you have to at this time of day make sure all the work has to be done before the audience start yeah. to arrive because they are seeking perfection from this place really yeah, I think what makes it sort of unusual is that this garden does have a deadline, so everything needs to be pristine and complete. And we tend to, we start early, we start at 7 o'clock in the morning. We try to get out of the gardens at 2 o'clock at the latest, so people can come and enjoy and set their picnics up, and we can't have, obviously, machinery, tools lying about. So what we tend to do is come back to the veg garden, to the greenhouse, 
there's works around there that we can get on with without being too evasive. Is there a lot of pressure on you to, because it is Glindbourne? There is pressure on us. I mean, every morning after performance, the first job is to go around the lawns and check that there's no litter about and bottles. We collect bottles and glasses. And then, you know, overnight things happen. If you get heavy rain, you get plants drooping over lights or over handrails. Those areas have to be cleaned to make way that all the pathways are clear so we're forever sweeping and blowing leaves up. Because as I was coming to you, I was making my way through the rose garden and one of your gardeners was very busy, you know, with the secateurs taking off the deadheads yeah. because it has to, an example of how it has to look its no, best. Quite. I mean, deadheading is probably one of the most important jobs we do this time of the year. And I'm thinking of you working away in the gardens and is there like a soundtrack there to is. your day? Oh. Absolutely. It really does emphasise how unique this place is, whereas first thing in the morning it's like any other big garden then you start hearing people coming in i.e the hoovers then you hear people warming their voices up or maybe a violin practicing and you can feel it building up the audience start arriving you hear corks popping and so you completely different change and then if you're here long enough there's sort of a gentle expectation of people talking you know quietly and then of course then an overture starts and it's just amazing and then you hear people applauding and leaving so you're gardening, it's the ethos of the place to be as environmentally exactly. friendly as possible? Yeah, because we have keen gardeners. It's quite nice when they say, what's this plant here? I've never seen that before. <laughs> and so we do it by seed, which is also unique here. We do most of our propagation here. And you have a team of propagators <coughs> led do, by, yeah. I believe, the Queen of Propagators. Yeah, Dawn. Yeah, yeah. we're going to beat her. Absolutely. <laughs> And it's Don Aldridge who has been described by everyone as the queen of <laughs> the, propagation. That's very nice, very nice. Thank you. So we're beside this huge uh, greenhouse. Yeah, we'll go in. Come in. Is it um, quite a challenge to be able to propagate enough plants to fill the huge borders that we've been looking it around? It is hard work, mm. yes. I mean, from February through to May, it's kind of constant propagating, sowing seeds potting up, putting up again, mm. you know, it's, it's continuous. It's like a factory in here. You are convinced it fits in with the whole ethos of the place? Definitely. I mean, yeah, you don't want to be buying in plants all the time, do you? I think it's nice to grow your own because then you can grow different varieties, which you can't always buy, and you can grow the quantity that you want. Being able to propagate plants is a, it's a great skill. It is. But not everybody does it anymore. No, I think um, in general probably it is being lost and I think maybe not so many people are coming into horticulture and that's an issue. Well you've got the benches down the middle and on either side, yeah. uh, pots of plants for cultivation or well on their way? You've kind of come at the end of the propagating season mm. so everything that I've grown and it was completely full, hundreds of plants, has now gone out and then it gets planted out into the borders so Mostly, they're all out now. <laughs> and how does that make you feel then? I feel like I'm their plant mother. <laughs> <laughs> so I nurture them and everything, and once they get outside, they're on their own. That's it, you know. They've got to fend for themselves. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel, I feel proud of my little plants when I see them out there growing. Yeah. I'm Gus Christie, and I'm the third-generation of Christie's running the opera here. My grandfather John Christie and grandmother Audrey Mardmay started Glyndebourne Festival Opera back in 1934. 
so 80 odd years ago and my dad took over in the early 60s um, with my mum and ran Glyndebourne for 40 years as, as its chairman and he knocked down the theatre that his dad had built and rebuilt a brand new one in the early 90s and I took over in 2000. My dad was 65 on the last day of the millennium so I always saw that as D-Day <laughs> and uh, we swapped houses in early 2002 so uh, that's really when I felt that the buck had been passed to me. So I live here, I was born and raised here, I was born in the house and I had a very happy childhood running around this extraordinary place. I could imagine, it must have been absolutely wonderful. I wonder how much these gardens, this wider landscape influenced you because you didn't start off essentially no. to become the you know, executive yeah. director yeah. of Glyndebourne. You... No. I did study zoology at university uh -huh. and I made wildlife films for 10 years. I love the outdoor world and nature, plants and animals. And so evolving the Glyndebourne Gardens, uh, trying new things out and seeing the wonderful results is a great part of my job trying new things out because there was one particular thing that I would just love to take a quick visit to. Sure. And that's the wind turbine. Okay, well, let's go. So just describe where we are. I'm glad we've come up here actually, Gus, because it gives me a great sense of the downs that surround us mm. and also how Glyndebourne seems to disappear down into one of in the, the valley. dips. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, we're standing on Mill Plain, about 400 metres away from the Opera House, which is the site of our new beautiful Enercon 900 kilowatt turbine. So it's been up now for six years, and over that period it has generated 102% of the power that Glymon has used. So we actually predicted it would do 90%, so it's done more. And... Um, that's to do with the staff at Glyndebourne being more mindful about the electricity and, and power that we use down there. It's to do with the wind speed, but it's, it's basically doing what we predicted and more, so we're, we're thrilled. We stand and we watch it gently turn. However, the, the, the process to have it sited here was quite long and drawn out. Just tell me a little bit about how you went through that planning process. Well, I was always passionate about doing our bit to reduce our carbon emissions, so we sought some advice and we were advised that the best way of using some form of renewable energy was to put a turbine up. So we went through the motions. We actually got permission from the, the local council in Lewis before it was a national park, and um, it was then called in for a public inquiry by Natural England, who opposed it. So we then had a, a week-long public inquiry in Lewis, and... Um, we and the council were up against the South Down Society, the Council of Protection of Rural England, Natural England and everybody. But the inspector deemed that the benefits of us reducing our carbon emissions outweighed the negative visual impact that the opposition were saying. Because but that is what a lot of people who are maybe all for wind power, that is the one thing that they feel they, they, they object to, is when a wind turbine potentially blights an area of outstanding natural beauty, which right. the Downs yeah. are. And, and yeah. could this open the door for other wind turbines on every lovely hilltop from here. Uh, but it hasn't. So that was the biggest concern, was the precedent that it would set. Yes. But this was six years ago, and not one has gone up since mm. in this area. You mentioned the South Downs National Park. That was created in 2011. Yes. We did quite a lot on that for open country uh -huh. at the time. There are people who would say that there is no place for a wind turbine in a national park, this area of great beauty. 
Well, um, wind turbines do divide opinions. But I do think there is a place within national parks as well as outside national parks to... I mean, I personally think they are objects of beauty because of what they're doing. And I actually think they can enhance a landscape. You don't want to have too many of them. There needs to be a balance. But the odd single one serving a local community or an industry or an arts organisation like us is, is, in my mind, a great message to send out to people. Did you hear any... Oh. Plenty. You know, in the early days. <laughs> Plenty. I was the attention-seeking sod over the hill, you know. <laughs> uh, and I had a lot of, uh, you know, very angry mail about it. But um, I had my doubts at times. And But actually, I just... The more I found out about how mankind was affecting the planet, and the more determined I was to get this through. And, and to, uh, So we all have to do our bit, and... and uh, we have a hill near us. We can, you know, we also had the resources to, to put a wind turbine up. We use a lot of power, so there was a, uh, you know, we had a big uh, electricity bill every year, and we need as much money as we can to, to put good productions on the stage and not spend it on rising oil and gas prices. So there, there are economic reasons, but the main drive w- was to reduce our, our own emissions and send out a positive message to everyone who comes here. It was definitely the right thing to do. After my trip up to Mill Plain and the wind turbine, I've returned to the gardens to find them transformed. Gone are the gardeners, handymen and rehearsing musicians, and instead every nook and cranny is full of members of the audience in their full evening dress. And as they enjoy the sense of anticipation ahead of this evening's performance, I'm going to hear from some of the artists about what it's like to work in these beautiful surroundings. First, I'm going to meet the soprano, Danielle Denise, who has a unique perspective on this place. As a few years after she made her debut here as Cleopatra in Julius Caesar, she married Gus Christie and now calls Glyndebourne home. But Danielle Denise, (laughs) you did come here first of all as a performer. Yes. Can you remember coming to Glyndebourne? Yeah, I have a very good story about how I came to Glyndebourne because I... Uh, at Paris airport I was sent to the wrong terminal and missed the flight and I had to then I was coming for an audition and I had to buy my own ticket and I remember I didn't know anything about Glyndebourne except that it was a very prestigious festival in the countryside so I arrived at the wrong airport took a bus took a train and I got here and I had 15 minutes to go and and the weather was closing in and I went to the stage door and I said I've got this audition, it's in 15 minutes, is there any way, can you get me to a practice room? And they said, would you like to go the short way or the long way? And I said, the short way, the short way and um, of course I didn't know what that meant, you see, I was just in a hurry to warm up and they brought me into this storm onto this sort of waterlogged lawn. I was wearing these cool-up pants and high heels, much higher than these heels and I just remember, I remember lifting up these Alexander McQueen culottes and thinking, where am I? And luckily that audition went so well. <laughs> and Gus always says, I mean, I, Gus is not here now, but he always says that when he heard that audition, after a few seconds, he thought, Booker. But I fell in love with Glenbourne and the gardens long before I fell in love with Gus. And the other thing, I mean, it's two things that really moved me when I first came to Glenbourne. And one is obviously this incredible setting. I mean, it is impossible to remain artistically sort of tightly wound, which you can get when you are putting up a show. You're creating a role, you're, 
you have to bring so much conviction to everything you do, but you have to remain flexible. And when you're in a city, you just, you're in the bustle. So all you have is your commute to a stage door entrance. And then you're basically without daylight sometimes for six, seven hours a day. You come out and it's nighttime. And then compare it with the experience of performance here. Any kind of negative energy is immediately erased by the surroundings when you're here. And so we're normally in another place. You would keep the window closed. You, You feel compelled to open because you want to let the sounds that are so much a part of this place in to that process. And I think its greatest strength is that it is constantly changing. So it has that flexibility. It breathes like the way music breathes in a way. It doesn't stay fixed. And, you know, you you have a better base for finding musical inspiration in a place like this. I remember something came over me in the nighttime and I decided I had to go and sing De Vieni Non Tardar in the night in the garden, just like Susanna did. Nobody was there. I've, you know, I, I remember I sang it all the way along the haha, and nobody knew or heard a thing. It was just for me. It was just something I wanted to do under the moonlight to see what that felt like, to see and what it felt like. It, it was amazing. I mean, but, I, but no, I've never told anybody that. I don't even think Gus knows that. <laughs> no, he does. Well, he does now. <laughs> I've managed to catch the conductor of tonight's performance of the Cavalli Opera, Ipermestra, William Christie, or everyone seems to call you Bill. So, Bill, we stand in this wild part of the gardens at the foot of the lake, and talk to me about the connection between music and place here at Glyndebourne. Gardens and music are terribly close, but first of all, historically, because um, one made music in gardens. And um, there's not a Baroque opera that somehow doesn't have a a moment when one's in a beautiful garden or a beautiful outdoor space. Musical terms like pastoral, you can't miss the mark there. A pastoral is music that was designed either to evoke gardens or to be played in them. Mm. So landscape and music are very closely connected. Totally. Mm. This is one of the rose gardens Mm -hmm. that there are and I'm with Joelle Harvey now I know you're not singing tonight so you have a moment or two in which you can come out into the gardens and take in this evening air and the sights and the sounds it's such a unique experience being here you don't often see people dressed up like that walking around in gardens and among sheep (laughs) what are you performing in at the moment? I'm singing Serviglia in La Clemenza di Tito so far so good (laughs) we're still in rehearsals I've been I've sung at Glenbourne a number of times and it always sort of feels like home to come back here partly because of, of the space that's here it just it feels so comfortable do you feel that connection to landscape when you're singing inside the opera house here you know actually thinking about it right now I have done Messiah a number of times and that's one of my absolute favorite pieces sort of in the middle of the piece right before the soprano sings there's a piece called a pifa which is just an orchestral piece and it's very pastoral and this is that to me. You can hear the sheep and if there were shepherds here, which I'm, maybe at some point there were, you hear the rolling hills, you hear all of that. And I think that's sort of the, the epitome of the gardens and, and the downs.
while everyone has gone into the opera, I have come down to the edge of this beautiful extended lake with John Hoyland, garden advisor. And the day takes on a different feel here, doesn't it? As we look across the grass verge at the end of the pond with orchids and over to the water lilies, nature's indicator of the end of the day because they close. Absolutely. This is a real treat, Mm. um, this moment, because... I like to come when there's a performance on just to eavesdrop on what the audiences are saying about the garden to really to enjoy them enjoying it but then when they go inside to listen to the opera to actually just come and sit and enjoy it for yourself and for just a moment it's 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 my garden <laughs> 